The U.S. dollar has been the world's reserve currency since World War II, but its dominance is being called into question. The mighty American dollar is coming under attack from BRICS countries and even Bitcoin. Can the greenback maintain pole position or will it be sideswiped by de-dollarization? Welcome to ICR Trade. I'm your host, Pamela Ambler. Soon we'll be joined by our special guest, Joe Sullivan, a senior advisor at the Lindsay Group and a former special advisor and staff economist at the White House Council of Economic Advisors. Then later, our resident expert, Oxford economics economist, Alex Holmes, to unpack the mechanics of a potential shift from the dollar. First though, Brazil, India, Russia, China, and South Africa, or BRICS nations, are ramping up rhetoric about de-dollarization. De-dollarization is a term to describe countries reducing their reliance on the U.S. dollar as a reserve currency. And if that happens, the world as we know it is going to change forever. IC Your Trade is brought to you by IC Markets, a leading high-performance trading provider. Trade up to IC Markets. Joe, you were a former advisor and economist in the White House during the Trump administration. Can you describe how worried the administration was about de-dollarization? Um, that's an easy question and a story that I can tell in three words, not at all. And that's because, um, that was then, and this is now, in fact, the concern that we had about the dollar was that it was too strong and that worried us because a currency that is too strong weakens the competitiveness of your exports and hurts your labor market. President Trump, as I'm sure you're aware, was very worried about the trade deficit and the strong dollar was, back then, causing the trade deficit to widen. So no, we were not worried about de-dollarization. In fact, our concern was about the excessive strength of the U.S. dollar. Right now, but the rhetoric has been ramping up in recent months about a BRICS currency. So what would happen if this was introduced? That would depend on how the BRICS go about the introduction of their new BRICS currency. The way to think about it is that the door to de-dollarization is wide open. The BRICS governments, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, have all indicated that they want to walk arm in arm through their door together to issue a joint currency. And that is a promising start, but what comes of that currency ultimately depends on how the BRICS walk through that door. They may sort of stumble through that door and disappoint those who expect the BRICS currency to really be a, a geopolitical shockwave, or they might deftly move forward with a uh, BRICS currency. But Pam, I think the answer to that really depends on the skill with which BRICS policymakers roll out their new BRICS currency. So we're talking about five countries here. How much of this is being driven by Russia and China? Are they the real drivers of de-dollarization? De-dollarization, uh, at least right now, is driven more by the sanctions on Russia and China than by Russia and China themselves. The U.S. has had sanctions for over 100 years, but beyond shooting wars like World War I and World War II, the U.S. has tended to refrain from imposing sanctions on the world's largest economies. Two of the world's biggest economies are Russia and China, and the U.S. in the last really decade or so has not refrained from imposing sanctions on them. And that has catalyzed the rest of the world to start thinking seriously about de-dollarization because a world in which the U.S. is sanctioning countries 
as large as Russia and China is a very different world than a world in which the U.S. was uh, sanctioning mostly men in caves, following 9-11 terrorist groups, or relatively small economies like Venezuela and Iran. And so I think it's easy to give Russia and China too much credit for de-dollarization because the headlines about sanctions tend to mention them. And I think in reality, it's the global sort of backlash and concern about the sanctions on them that is catalyzing this wave of de-dollarization. Okay, so let's talk about the sanctions imposed on Russia by the U.S. How much is Russia's deviation from the dollar about Russia bypassing U.S. sanctions? Russia's deviations from the U.S. dollar um, are entirely about bypassing U.S. sanctions. If you look at how Russia has managed its foreign currency reserves, you see a clear inflection point in 2014. What happened in 2014? Putin invaded Crimea, and the U.S. imposed sanctions on Russia for that invasion. Putin, what seems to have happened, then instructed the Russian Central Bank to essentially try to sanctions-proof Russia's economy. Russia's, Russia has done that in a number of ways, one of which, as you say, is by de-dollarization. Another important way has been by keeping their dollars in places that are harder, essentially, for the U.S. Treasury to find. But to the extent that your question is about Russia circumventing the dollar, I think it's hard to see Russia's behavior as anything, as motivated by anything besides sanctions evasion. Right, but if you look at Russia's sales of oil and gas, U.S. sanctions had almost no impact on revenue. Sales were still made and they were just sold to BRICS countries priced in local currencies, not the U.S. dollar. Is that right? To some extent, I think what happened to Russia's oil revenue following the imposition of the oil price cap, what you see in that sort of depends on what you're looking for. President Biden's team at the Treasury Department had an extraordinarily difficult task given to them by the White House. And that task was how to deprive Russia of oil revenue without spiking gas prices here in the United States. And so their approach was tailored to target the average price per barrel that Russia could earn on a barrel of oil sold in the world market. By that metric, the oil price cap did succeed because it lowered the average price. And uh, commodities, they're generally priced in U.S. dollars, but if they start being priced in the currencies of the buyers, what happens then? That's a great question, Pam. You often see headlines about commodities being sold in the currencies of buyers. One example that's familiar to many viewers, I'm sure, is Saudi Arabia selling China oil in, and having the contract be denominated in China's currency. These are interesting because they indicate a real desire to de-dollarize, but the currencies of buyers, I think, will be a less consequential signal of what's happening in the monetary system than would be the case if the currencies of commodity sellers were used to complete commodity transactions. And that's because if that were the case and commodity sellers were selling their commodities in their own currencies, if that were happening and they also offered you attractive places to park their currency, say it was Brazil and to buy Brazil's, say, lumber, you had to also in invest in Brazilian reals. If Brazil could pull that off, then you wouldn't need to buy dollars at all because you wouldn't need to park your money in dollars, you'd park it in reals. And you would also be doing the transaction in reals. And so while headlines about currencies of commodity buyers are interesting, I think the real story, if there is one like this, will be with the currencies of commodity sellers. And another major move has been China demanding spot iron ore trade be priced and settled in yuan. 
not U.S. dollars. Is there a tipping point here, particularly in the case of iron ore, where a commodity starts becoming priced in a different currency than the U.S. dollar? And the case of iron ore is a phenomenal case study. But I would argue, and I think if you look at the facts, they show that it illustrates how hard it is to de-dollarize commodity markets. China is by far the world's biggest consumer of iron ore, and 60% of the iron ore that they consume comes from Australia. That gives China enormous bargaining power to setting the terms of the, of the iron ore that they buy from Australia. And even then, it was only re pretty recently in 2023 that they managed to get Australian iron ore exporters to settle contracts for iron ore delivered to ports in China in China's currency. If that's what it takes to de-dollarize a commodity market, not that many commodity markets will be de-dollarizing anytime soon. Now, the U.S. has faced criticism over time for weaponizing its currency, which involves a whole range of tactics like preventing countries like Russia and Iran from accessing their U.S. foreign reserves, imposing economic sanctions and boycotts. Has this weaponization now backfired against the U.S.? It certainly has to at least some extent. Washington has been binging on sanctions and the different sorts of uh, coercive financial measures that you're describing, I think, now for about a decade. And I think following the binge tends to come the hangover. And so, yes, Washington is now experiencing the hangover from its binge on um, essentially financial weaponry. So what can the U.S. do to bring the dollar back to dominance? And also, in your opinion, should the U.S. be doing so? The U.S. cannot control the fact that the, the dollar is, even Janet Yellen herself said recently to Congress, in something of a decline in terms of its role in the global economy. That trend line is going down. What Washington does now can influence whether that trend is gradual or steep. Fundamentally, it cannot change that trend in terms of the fact that it's going down. But Washington, Pam, as you point out in the second part of your question, it's unclear, at least in principle, whether or not this is good or bad for the United States. I think Washington should not cry about the dollar's demise or rather its decline in the global economy. The U.S. dollar, I think, has been too expensive for U.S. exporters to be competitive in a global economy for a long time. And I think that the lessening of the dollar's role in the world economy will help make the U.S. competitive economically, will help the U.S. labor market and it'll even help the U.S. reverse some of the deindustrialization that it has seen over the last few decades. And I think one interesting contrast is between the U.S. and Taiwan. Taiwan, as we're all now uh, familiar with hearing about, has a very robust semiconductor industry. But while it was building that industry, the Taiwanese Central Bank was devaluing the Taiwanese dollar, which had the effect of making Taiwan semiconductors more expensive. Now the U.S. is sort of in a new era where it's prioritizing its ability to produce things like semiconductors at home. And so I think fortuitously, a declining role for the dollar in the world's economy is now consistent with some of Washington's policy priorities, like rebuilding its uh, capacity to make semiconductors. Thank you, Joe. Now, before we dive deeper, let's turn to Alex Holmes from Oxford Economics. Alex, can you uh, try to put some context around the role of the dollar in the global economy and the barrier is standing in the way of any shift away from it? Thanks, Pamela. Yeah, sure, I can. First thing to, to note is that there are many different roles that the dollar plays in the economy. So 
he plays roles in spot transactions such as uh, Swift transactions or invoice financing. It can be used in cross-border loans or debt securities. And finally, it can, as Joe mentioned, uh, when he talked about official reserves, be used as a store of value as well. But this chart really gives a really good impression of the broad spectrum of dollar dominance. And what really jumps out, I think, is the largest bar, which is FX transaction volumes. Over 90% of uh, currency transactions involve the US dollar. And that's because it's used in pretty much every cross-currency swap. So when you change, for instance, an Aussie dollar for um, Indonesian rupee, what actually happens usually is that Aussie dollar is converted into a US dollar and then they use that to then convert to the second currency. Now, can we dive a little bit deeper on why is that the case? Yeah, so it's kind of built into the global financial system. Really, um, it's this almost hardwired uh, role of the US dollar in FX transactions is because it's so liquid and people want to hold it because it's easy to exchange for another thing. And liquidity begets liquidity in this case. So if you think about the different roles of the dollar first um, as a means of exchange, it's only really on the last chart, it showed that 50% of trade invoicing was, was done in US dollar. There's only really that low because of the, the euro. If you step outside the eurozone, actually the dollar still remains pretty dominant in uh, trade financing. Even in, in APAC, it accounts for about 80%. Um, you can basically buy anything with a dollar. Second, if you look in, in its role as, as a store of value, um, when, when companies or financial institutions have reserves, they don't tend to keep them in deposits because they're unsecured. They look to hold them in, in liquid cash-like securities. And the largest source of that globally, by far, is a $24 trillion US Treasury uh, market. And nothing really comes close. Its size means that, that these securities are as liquid as cash. And that's really where the next best alternative to the dollar, the euro, kind of falls down. It's not backed by a, a deep common sovereign bond market. And the renminbi is a bit of a non-starter in this aspect. Um, capital controls mean it's hard to move money in and out of China. So there's no real kind of cash-like securities there. And the ubiquity of the dollar um, in all of these different roles is actually kind of self-reinforcing. So its size and liquidity leads to more demand and more size and liquidity and means that dollar hegemony is a very hard system to step away from. Thank you for your insights, Alex, as always. So Joe, we also want to touch on cryptocurrencies. Uh, can Bitcoin replace the US dollar as the world's reserve currency? Bitcoin absolutely cannot replace the dollar or anything as a global reserve currency. To be reserve currency, you need fundamentally men with guns to back you up. But the defining feature of Bitcoin is that no government and no set of men with guns backs it up. For that reason, Bitcoin, it may have uses in some contexts, but it will never be a reserve currency. And so I think there is some irony here. A lot of Bitcoin advocates have touted the lack of a national government issuing Bitcoin as an asset, and that may be true in many settings. But when it comes to Bitcoin's viability as a global reserve currency, that is absolutely a liability because national governments, as Bitcoin advocates often say, are sort of financial wolves. But by issuing any national government, what Bitcoin has done is leave itself vulnerable to 192 wolves because there are 192 national governments around the world. And it has uh, forsaken the one wolf that normally guards you, which in the case of uh, the US dollar is the US government. 
interesting. Now, if you could rate the probability and timeline for the U.S. losing its dominance as the world's currency, what is your forecast? Well, Pam, as they say on Fight Club, on a long enough time horizon, the survival rate for everyone and everything drops to zero. The U.S. dollar is no exception. In the fullness of time, it is certain that the U.S. dollar will lose its global reserve status. The question is when. But before answering your question of when, it's important to clarify what we mean by loss of uh, global reserve currency status. And to simplify that, I'm going to define loss of reserve currency status as when the dollar share of global reserves drops below 50%. I would say in 10 years, there is about a 30% chance of that happening. In 20 years, there's about a 60% chance of that happening. In 30 years, there's about a 90% chance of that happening. The first rule of Fight Club is to not talk about Fight Club. <laughs> but uh, finally, to end the episode, what is a future where the US dollar is no longer the world's reserve currency? What would that look like? The future of a post-dollar world, I think, is best seen through a historical analogy. And that analogy, I think, is, the, is actually the 19th century. If you look at the British pound in the early 19th century, it looks a lot like the US dollar in the early 20th century. British pound started off the 19th century with a commandingly high level of currency dominance. From that high level, it was then trending down for decades. And Pam, I'll leave you with one final question to ponder based on that analogy, which is that if the dollar does take the path in the 21st century that the pound took in the 19th century, people on, on podcasts like this will soon face a conundrum. And the conundrum is sort of an existential question, which is what is a global reserve currency? Because most historians regard the pound as being the global reserve currency of the 19th century. But for much of that time, the pound had less than half of the world's foreign exchange reserve in pounds. And that's because while the pound was the world's leading reserve, or was the world's leading currency, it had a plurality of foreign exchange reserves, not a majority. And I think that's going to confuse a lot of people who are accustomed to sort of seeing the soaring heights of dollar dominance. Because I, what I would imagine is going to happen is the dollar is going to trend down by the many measures of currency dominance that exist, but there's gonna be no clear replacement so that while the dollar is gonna fall below 50%, and if that's your definition of global reserve currency, and that is my definition, then you'll be saying there is no global reserve currency. But if by definition you regard there as being one global reserve currency, then you will see that number, say it's 45% compared to say China's 20%, and say that the dollar is still a global reserve currency. And so while a 21st century, that's like the 19th century, might sound scary, at least for those of us who are inclined to talk about things like global reserve currencies on podcasts, there will still be plenty left for us to talk about. Like you said at the beginning, that was then, this is now. <laughs> but always good to have historical context. Thank you very much, Joe, for your insights. Thank you, Pam. It was a pleasure to talk to you today. A big thank you to our special guest, Joe Sullivan, a senior advisor at the Lindsay Group and a former special advisor and staff economist at the White House Council of Economic Advisors, and our resident expert, Alex Holmes from Oxford Economics. Thank you both. What will the world look like if the U.S. dollar is no longer the global reserve currency? One thing is for sure, the impacts would be far-reaching and change the landscape for geopolitics forever. 
Thanks for tuning in to our final episode of season three of I See Your Trade. I See Your Trade is brought to you by IC Markets, a leading high performance trading provider. Trade up to IC Markets. Remember, you can watch and listen back to the episodes from the past three seasons on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and YouTube. See you next time.